All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Ephesians. Now, the last time we were here, we were completing chapter three, which basically dealt with Paul's uh, declaration that he was an apostle specifically to the Gentiles and how that he gave thanks to God for this stewardship and also that the Gentiles themselves, what is also being inferred, should be thankful to God for his inclusion of them into the promised blessings that was one time available only to Jews, to the which a Gentile could only share in these blessings by becoming a adherer to the Jewish faith. That is, a Gentile as a Gentile was excluded from the commonwealth and the blessings of Israel. He had to convert to Judaism, be circumcised, and keep the law of Moses. But now, in Christ Jesus, this is no longer the case. A Gentile as a Gentile, uncircumcised, without keeping the law of Moses, but in faith in Jesus Christ, is now able to join with the Jews in those once coveted blessings of the covenant. And now all are in Christ Jesus enjoying such blessings. And so that's what he talked about in chapter three. And it ended a particular section, the theo theological section. If you remember from the previous video, the last video that I did concerning that, and how Paul often subdivides his epistles into two. That is, the first part will have some type of theological importance or message or theme. And then the second part would have a practical uh, message. That is, Paul speaking of how we need to respond to whatever he said in the first part in practical living, how we need to live out the faith. Exercise the, exercise the faith in our daily lives. So the first part, the first section we have now ended in that theological sense of salvation, God's salvation. And notice we saw a lot of what the idea of God's purpose, God's plan, the predestination of God's people, the predestination to God's end. So we saw a lot of purpose and predestination language that was used with respect to salvation. But now we get into chapter four and to the end of the chapter, Paul is going to deal with that practical side. In other words, having this great salvation that God has purposed for a particular people what shall we therefore do? Or how shall we therefore respond? So the idea uh, uh, solidifies the sense that salvation is not of anything that we do. Salvation comes because of the, the, the pleasure, the determination of God himself. But to those whom God has determined to grant this gift of salvation, now that you have been saved, how should you in gratitude respond to God's gracious gift? And this is the idea of chapter four. Okay, enough of that. So let's just get into chapter four. Now, chapter four is of some length. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide chapter four up into two videos. That is the first half, which will be dealing basically with the idea of the unity in responding to the gift of God's grace, the unity that God's people should endeavor to maintain a unity that God had already given to the which we should endeavor, we should strive to maintain this unity, especially that unity, namely in the body of Christ, as well as those gifts that God has given to the body. So that particular section we're going to talk about, which would be basically verses one through 13. Let's do it. Let's do it at one through 13. Okay. But anyway, let's just simply get started. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, 
gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let me stop there because I was going to read a little bit further, but let me stop there to, to lay the foundation that Paul himself is laying in the scripture. So notice he refers to himself once again as prisoner of the Lord, that is prisoner of Christ, which again, we denote that Paul, Paul wrote this particular epistle while he was in his first Roman imprisonment. Ephesians was one of those epistles written during that particular time. So Paul highlights the fact once again, he is imprisoned. And so what does he do? He, he desires for them to notice, walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That is to respond to God's gift of salvation. And that's the point that I was trying to make for you guys earlier. There, and, and as we see, especially in chapter two, what did Paul say? For by grace, God's grace, God's plan, God's will, God's purpose. For by grace, you have been saved. This is the gift of God, not of works. It takes away boasting. So in other words, the salvation that God has given to all, especially in this context, the Gentiles, this salvation has nothing to do with the individual. You did not earn, you did not merit these things. You did nothing that you might deserve. You did not work. You did absolutely nothing to deserve salvation. But as he gets into chapter four, what does he say? Since you have done nothing to be granted this wonderful inheritance of your salvation, God has been so good to you. How should you therefore respond? And that's the idea, responding to the grace of God, responding, having gratitude that God has saved you. How should you show your gratitude? By walking in a worthy manner. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of your salvation, this salvation that has been graciously given to you, nothing do of yourself, respond, respond, respond how? By how you live the rest of your life. And then he talks about certain character that should be shown in the believer. And the first one is humility. Now let me spend just a little time with this because in the Greco Roman culture of that day, it was said and believed that only slaves should be humble. Only slaves should have a mindset and a life that is characterized by humility. So the first thing that Paul stabs at is pride because we see that pride is basically the antecedent of how God expects his people to behave, to think of themselves. Why? You should be humble because in the first place, when God saved you, it was nothing due to some prideful thing that you did, but God saved you of his own will and show this gratitude to this saving grace in humility. So Paul uh, counteracts the mindset of that day when they would look down upon humility. But Paul said that this should be the very hallmark of the Christian mindset. Be humble, be gentle and patience and showing tolerance. Now, this should be the character of the Christian as a whole, but especially as we see here, notice what he's saying for one another in love. That is when, because he's going to talk about what that, the, the, the maintaining of the Christian body, the unity for all believers, that cohesiveness that should be formed with all of the believers in Christ Jesus, whether Jew, whether Gentile or whatever race you might be from. But when it comes to one another, those who are of the household of God, how should we be towards one another? 
even specifically that humility, showing what? That gentleness and having what? Patience with one another, tolerance for one another, intolerance in our shortcomings, in our trespasses against one another, tolerance with our ignorance of things to, to, to bring, help mature one another, bring one another into the faith of things, the right understanding of scripture and God's ways, that tolerance and not being short patience and quick to strike back and quick to correct in a negative sense. You see what I'm trying to say? But the idea of overall humility and love, because it's love that actually binds all of these things together, loving one another. So he just simply says to do all of these things that we might keep and maintain the bond of peace that the Holy Spirit has already given all of us as believers. So the idea that Paul lays down that foundation is a change in character. And with that change in our character, this change should be to the end of preserving the peace in the saints. And this moves Paul to continue speaking of that peace, which gives unity, the peace of God amongst his people that gives the unity that God desires, even demands for his people. The, and so that was the unity, notice unity, verse number three, unity in the bond of peace, peace, mindset, unity. Now he begins to continue to talk more so about that unity or oneness that should be uh, uh, maintained and manifested in the people of God. And we can already see that, that unity, that oneness. Notice as he talked about earlier, chapters one and two, what Jew and Gentile, that wall of division, that partition that was erected between them, but that wall being what? Torn down and God making what? One new man, one new man consisting of both Jew as well as Gentile. And since God has given us peace, tearing down that wall of enmity, God has given us that peace, making us one, we should endeavor to remain in that peaceful unity. See how, see how he's working it out. But anyway, let's continue because we don't want to make this unnecessarily long. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So let's stop there. So clearly we can see that what Paul is expressing is unity, but also notice how he ties that unit. It is such a beautiful thing that he just did. He ties the unity of the body of Christ with the unity of the triune God. Notice the unity, the oneness of the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy spirit. Now, Paul would kind of reverse this order a little bit that so that it'll fit the context of what he's trying to say. But nevertheless, we're still going to see the Trinity. And we know that the Trinity is unity because the very idea or the substance of the word Trinity comes from two parts. Tri meaning three and unity meaning one. That is the unity of three persons in one, one being of God. So how does he do it? In the sense that he's talking about striving for the unity of the church. Now let's look at each one of them as it pertains to Paul's concept of unity, as it points to a particular person 
in the Trinity. What does he say? There is one body and one spirit. One body that is one church. Church being what? Jew and Gentile. But nevertheless, having these specific groups, it still constitutes what? Just one body. But this is brought about the body of Jesus Christ by what? The one spirit. So notice as we work through these, this text here, notice the continual usage of the word one in all of the different ways that Paul would try to use it. Haste or Mia or Henny, all of these words in Greek mean one. But the point is, he is dealing with unity, the oneness. But let's go back to our observation. One body by what? One spirit. So the person of God that he's talking about here in particular is the Holy Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So the one body by what? The one spirit. Verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so here, the one Lord, and notice we always teach that what? The Lord, kurios, is always the New Testament title for Jesus, the divine title. When you speak of Jesus as God, you call him Lord. So almost in every occasion, when you will see Lord in the New Testament, almost every occasion, it speaks of the divine Jesus as God, the divine title of Jesus. But notice as it speaks to the church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the second person of the divine Trinity is spoken of with respect to what? The faith and the baptism. And the faith is, uh, is, object is, is objectively, objectively by which and to whom, or should I say, upon whom do you believe? Whom do we believe? To be saved, we believe in the person and works of one Lord, of Jesus. We believe in Jesus. For by faith in Christ Jesus, we are saved and we have been baptized into what? The body of Christ Jesus. So notice how it beautifully fits. One Lord Jesus having faith, being baptized into the Lord Jesus. And then he continues on with the last, what? Six, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And this is, and this, all of this, let me see, let me make the point. Let me finish the point. And so therefore the final reference is to God, the father. So notice you can see unity that what one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, Holy Spirit, unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, unity, one God and Father. But at the same time, we see whom? Both, all three, I'm sorry, Spirit, Lord Jesus, God the Father, the Trinity, and the Trinity is one and thereby we see Paul bringing in the sense and so must the church of God reflect this same thing. The church of God must be one. But in all of these things, now let me make this point. When we see the Trinity, even though God is one, but yet God has three persons, what we are also allowed to see, especially even uh, I wouldn't say so much uniquely, but it is being expressed more so here is the role that God plays, that all three persons of God play in redemption. We are allowed to see their roles in redemption. And that's why we can see why we see this sense of, even though they're unified, but we can see the separateness of the different roles that they play. Notice how the spirit brings in and aids to the body of Christ, the body of Christ, one body, one spirit, how it is the Lord Jesus, the one who is made flesh. He who accomplishes our redemption by his death 
on the cross. And therefore us having faith in who he is and what he has done, we are brought into his body, one Lord and one faith. And then we see God, the father who plays in the redemptive role of God, who is what Lord over all things to by whom all are subject unto him. One God and father who is what over all through all in all. And so thus we are enabled to see here by this beautiful uh, point that Paul is trying to make concerning unity, unity of the Godhead. We are a, and also unity that he desires in the church to be maintained. We are able to see the redemptive role to the, which the Godhead plays the re role in redemption that the spirit plays. Jesus plays God. The father plays. Okay. Let's continue. Verse number seven, but to each one with respect to maintaining the church, the unity of the church, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Where therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all things so that he might fill all things. Now, here is a, 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 in a very um, simplistic sense, Paul is talking about what he, that is namely Jesus has given, but he plays that in a very difficult backdrop. So this part of the scripture, it, it, it is, it is in a sense kind of difficult to understand. So we're going to try to make it easy and simplistic for you. Okay. But it is kind of difficult, but we want, we don't want to lose the main track of Paul's thought in, in maintaining the unity of the church and in the building up of the church, Jesus gave gifts to the church. That's his overall thought. All right. But he talks about the manner in which he did these things. So let's just turn our attention to the, to the text and, and look at each of these verses to see what he means. Let's simply exegete to the text seven, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the grace that is given to each one is a gift. So what is he saying that to maintain the unity of the church and even to the building up of the church, Jesus, when he departed, we're going to talk about that later. He departed ascending into heaven. He gave gifts to whom to each one of us. That means every believer has one or more gifts, spiritual gifts given to him from Christ Jesus. All right. And so he gave all of us a particular one or more gifts. Verse eight, therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now this is the part that's kind of difficult. And Paul is somewhat uh, uh, speaking in a practical sense of the scripture. Paul is laying forth an application. What did I say? He is laying forth an application. So what is he doing? Paul here is quoting for the most part an application. Paul is quoting Psalm 68 and 18. Now I do want to look at that in the Hebrew. We don't want to get so much into that into the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, I think that particular verse is in verse 19 in Hebrew Bible. But here in the English, um, as well as the Greek, we 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 paginized it uh, numerically in verse 18. But anyway, we don't want to get into all of that. So what is he saying? When he ascended on high, he led captive 
a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So first we need to understand from the, which Paul is quoting that verse. And that is in Psalm 18, Psalm 68. I'm so sorry. Psalm 68. And the quotation comes from verse uh, 19 and, and, and you, but here it says, and you, and the idea Paul understands it as the, the practical. Oh, when I say is this, Paul is giving a practical interpretation of this verse. That is, Paul is not trying to exegete Psalm 68 in its context, but Paul is giving us, I kept saying practical, but the idea that was in my mind was application. Application means to take a, take a verse of scripture or a passage or passages and give an application from that passage, okay? To use it in a particular way. So here it is talking about the writer of Psalm 68 is talking about a great king who has gone and conquered. And when this king has conquered a people, he receives gifts from those people. That's Psalm. And so that's why in Psalm uh, 60, 68 and 19, Alit, Alitta, Latmaron, Shabiat, Shabit, you, you received gifts from these people. You received gifts from the people that you conquered. But Paul is applying this to the work of Jesus in that when Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross, he did not receive gifts. But Paul says here that what? He gave gifts. He gave gifts to men. And the men that Paul is applying are the people of the church. And what is he saying? Notice earlier, he said in verse seven, to each one of us, we have the Christ gift. That is a particular one or more gifts given by Jesus Christ. And what the application of this verse, Psalm 68, when Jesus conquered sin and death, he gave gifts to men. What men? Those in his church those in his body. And so that's the application that Paul is trying to use. But he continues on in that verse. Notice when, now, now we want to put it all together because we need to bring it all together to see the picture of what Paul is trying to give us. So he ascended on high. He, all right. Therefore it says he ascended on high. This is speaking of Jesus's Ascension into heaven after he resurrected from the dead. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, we know according to the book of Acts, Acts chapter one, he was received by a cloud and he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the father. But notice also it continues to say what he led captive a host of captives. There were those who at one time were held captive, were also led free from their captivity. So this is somewhat of an enigma, a mystery. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to put together all of these things. Okay. A mystery of something that Paul is letting us see what Jesus did in, in the process of his ascending into heaven after his resurrection from the dead to the right hand of God. He led a captive, a host of cap captives. Verse nine. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also, what? Descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heaven so that he might feel, feel all things. So now let's bring it all together. So he, these, there are captives that Jesus broke free. He led them free from their captivity and what 
those who were once bound and captive, Jesus took them with him when he ascended back to heaven. You see how it's going? Those who were once captive, Jesus broke them free from their captivity, freed them, and took them with him when he himself ascended into heaven. But where were they? Let's try to identify who they were. Jesus also, in breaking them free, he descended himself also, the, he descended, so they were held captive in the lower parts of the earth. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. You see it now? He descended into the lower parts of the earth. So what he's trying to say? Let me just give you the picture. Let me paint for you the picture so that you can understand it clearly. We can see this uh that we can get, we can gather this understanding from Luke 16 in the death of Lazarus and the death of the rich man. Remember what Jesus said at the death of Lazarus. What do we see? We see the spirit, the soul of both because the Lazarus as well as the rich man, both died their bodies but their souls, both their souls, notice what I just said. Now pay attention to this part very carefully. Both the souls of Lazarus as well as the rich man descended into the lower parts of the earth, both of their souls. And this is the place that is called Sheol, that is the place for departed spirits, the place for departed spirits. Okay. Whether the spirits be righteous men or unrighteous men, because we see the righteous man, Lazarus spirit descending into the lower parts of the earth. And we see the unrighteous man, the rich man, his spirit also descending into the lower parts of the earth. But what? There was a distinction. When Lazarus' spirit descended, it descended into a place referred to as paradise, where what? It was also called the bosom of Abraham. Paradise, the place where righteous men's spirit descended. And then the rich man, the place where unrighteous men's spirit was hell, Gehenna, the place of burning fire. And note very carefully. The only thing that separated the place, the place paradise from Gehenna burning hell paradise, the place where the righteous men spirits were Gehenna burning fire where unrighteous men spirit were. The only thing that divided them was a great gulf. Why? Because what do we see? We see the rich man screaming and crying over to father Abraham, requesting that Lazarus be allowed to dip his finger into cool water and cool the tongue of the rich man. And the reply of father Abraham, they, the righteous are not allowed to cross over to the other side. So what can, what can we see? The place generally was the same place. That's why we understand it as Sheol, the place of divided spirits, divided spirits for both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, but they were simply separated into two different compartments. One paradise, Abraham's bosom and the other Gehenna, the place of a burning fire. It was into this place when Jesus died, the spirit of Jesus, notice what I said, the spirit of Jesus, Peter lets us know that what Peter went and preached to the spirits that were one time disobedience. That is that word caruzzo to proclaim, not to preach a message, for redemption that they might be saved, 
But Jesus went and preached to the angels that sinned, Genesis chapter 6, during the days of Noah, I won, I won, I went to the cross, therefore I win and you sinful angels will be judged. That's one thing that the spirit of Jesus did. But another thing that the spirit of Jesus did was he went into this place, paradise that we've been speaking about. And those righteous men who were in this place from all the righteous saints of the old Testament, from the time of Adam up until the time that Jesus himself died on the cross, all those righteous dead who were there. Let me answer the question because you should be saying, well, why did these people not simply go to heaven? Because we know what did Paul say in the book of Philippians for me to die is to be with Christ. And where does the scripture say that Jesus is after his resurrection from the dead? He ascended on high. Jesus is sitting in heaven on the right hand of God. For me to die, Paul says, is to be with Christ. So the believer instantly today, the believer in Christ Jesus after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we go straight to heaven. We do not go to paradise. But the believers before the death of Jesus went into paradise. So the question you are asking me, or you should be asking yourself is why didn't they just simply go to heaven? Because what, what did the writer of Hebrews say for the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. They were simply God's given a God given substitute before the death of the Messiah. And the point of the writer of Hebrews is only the blood of the Messiah himself can take away sin. Therefore, God had given the substitutionary blood of bulls and goats for all Old Testament saints. So this was a substitution for the taking away covering of their sins. But even though their sins were covered, their sins were what covered their sins were still not taken away, taken away. Only the blood of the Messiah, Jesus can take away sins. So therefore God still considered them as righteous, placing them in paradise placing them in a place where they did not suffer to await, to await the time when the Messiah would die on the cross and the blood of his death would take away their sins and the Messiah himself would go down into the lower parts of Sheol, he would go down into paradise and those righteous saints who were held in paradise, he would set them free because he paid the price for their sins with his own blood. He would set them free and take them along with him into heaven itself when he ascended into heaven by his blood he closes the door once and for all to paradise for all righteous believer making a way so that when any believer after Jesus death, any believer should die, they would immediately ascend into heaven with him. So now let's go back to the context of this passage. So what is he saying? When he, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a captive up a host of captives, that is all of that, that I just said, when Jesus ascended, he freed those who were in paradise, those who were once held in paradise because the blood of the Messiah had not yet been shed for sin. But since it had been done, the spirit of Jesus went into paradise. He went into the lower parts of the earth 
he who ascended, what does it mean? That he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He went into the lower parts of the earth, paradise, Sheol, and broke them. He freed them from their captivity now that his blood was shed and he took them back into heaven. And Jesus resides, what? That he who descended uh, also ascended far above all heaven that he might feel all things, thereby Jesus being Lord of all things, Lord of things in heaven, Lord of things underneath the heavens, that Jesus may be Lord of all. So the context that Paul is simply saying is here in the sense that Jesus, the full idea, gave gifts to men when he ascended into heaven. That's the full context. Jesus gave gifts, gifts so that the church may be the unity of the church may be maintained in peace. Jesus gave gifts to everybody. You got it. And also in the ascending of Jesus, what did he do? He freed those who were once held into paradise awaiting the shed blood of the Messiah. He freed them and took them back to heaven with him and shut the door to paradise, allowing all believers to simply ascend into heaven at their deaths. But the idea is Jesus gave gifts to the church when he ascended into heaven. That's the operative idea. And the rest of it is Paul speaking of a mystery of things not seen at the death of Jesus. That is what was not seen, his ascension into paradise and freeing those in paradise and taking them back to heaven. That was not seen in Jesus's ascension. Okay, now let us return back to the text and close this section. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I love that. Okay, let me make the point. So what? At first he made the statement, remember, in verse 7, but to each one of us the grace, the gift of Christ was given. Okay? So everyone has one or more gifts given by Jesus Christ, spiritual gifts. But Jesus, uh, so, but Paul, I'm sorry, begins to speak specifically of certain gifts, certain gifts. So everybody, every believer has a gift, but as he gets into verse 11, he begins to talk about particular gifts and those gifts being given as men, those gifts, those gifts for the benefit for the unity of the church, those gifts he speaks to be men. So they, they are gifts, but gifts as men. And what gifts as men did Jesus give to his church? He gave some apostles. And, and let me get back to my Greek text here because I popped off of it. He gave some as apostles to main apostolus. Indeed, he gave some as apostles. And notice we're going to see that article, the article that's kind of like controlling the context of the gifts, the article, the article to, that's the article that he's going to use. That's being, it's a definite article. That's being the controlling factor to the gifts. So what? He gave some apostles. What else he gave? And we know the apostles were apostles and prophets were foundation as Paul talked about early in the book of Ephesians. 
apostles being those particular men that God, that Jesus had given. He gave prophets, New Testament prophets. He's not talking about Jeremiah or Isaiah. He's talking about New Testament prophets. So he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. These are men who are to go out and preach the gospel, gospel to the Jews, preach the gospel to the Gentiles, some as evangelists. Now notice the second part and some as pastors and teachers. Notice it says, Tuesday pormenos ka didaskalus. Notice the tus controls the context. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So when he speaks of pastors and teachers, the job is one in the same. The role is one in the same. In other words, one cannot be a pastor and not be a teacher. Notice again, some pastors and teachers. He did not say some pastors and some teachers. No, he said some. Remember I kept telling you, Tus, the word that we can, we uh, translate some, tus, which is that definite article, to mean to be controlling of for each particular group. So for this group, pastors and teachers, it speaks of the one and the same ministry. If one is a pastor, one is, must be a teacher, okay? So he... So in this section, he is talking about these groups of men that God, Christ, has given, Christ has given to the church. So these are gifts. These men are gifts that Christ has given to the church for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the equipping of the rest of the body of the church, for the saints for the work of service. These men, apostles and prophets, to the which we have no more, but now we have evangelists, pastors and teachers. These men are given to build up the church, to equip the church in whatever spiritual service that God has determined for the church to build up the body of Christ. Now, our final verse, I like that. He says, until we attain to the unity of the faith. That is so important, that word that is used for until. It is the Greek word mekri, mekri, which means it, it, it is a word that deals with a specific point in time. It points to a point in time. Time. So what is he saying? So in holistically as a whole, the gifts that Jesus has given all members of his church, then what? In particular, certain men gifts that Jesus has given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, certain men gifts, all of this, Collectively, these gifts Jesus has given to the church to build up the church, mekri, to up to. See, that's what I want you to get. That's what I really want you to get. He's given these gifts, mekri, up to a point in time. What point in time? We all attain to perfect unity, to the perfect knowledge of the Son of God to the perfect measure of, a, of the maturity of a man, perfect maturity of a man, to the perfect stature that belongs to the, notice the language, fullness of Christ. Okay, so here's how I'm going to spend the final time. Beautiful, 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 but not easy, easy to 
easily to be understood because we don't see that mekre, even though there is a good translation. There is, that is, when we say until, it's a good translation, but we really can't see it. We need to see that mekre. What is he saying? All the gifts, whether to each person or in specifically these men that he gives for the building of the church, are given up to a point. The gifts that Jesus has given the church will continue throughout the church age up until the church is raptured. These gifts will continue, but these gifts will not be continued after the rapture. There will no longer be any spiritual gift. Why? Because God's people, the church at that time will attain. They will have perfect unity of faith. They will have the perfect knowledge of the son of God. See right now we are not perfect in our unity. So what does God do? What, what has God done? He has given us all of these spiritual gifts. He has given us certain men to function in the church to help to do what? Maintain that unity to help give us what? That knowledge. That's what I'm doing. Literally. I'm doing this literally right now for you. I am imparting certain spiritual knowledge that you may not have, but there will come a time. All of this will be continually done. Mekri. There will come a time at the rapture when you, all of us will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and we will be transformed into what we will ultimately be in all of the things, the glory that we are to have the promises that God speaks of. We will be that new transformed creature. John said, we don't know what we will be, but we do know what in that day we will be like him. When that day of transformation comes for the believer, there is no need of you being taught. You will have, we as God people, perfect unity, perfect knowledge, perfect faith, perfect. We will be the perfect measure of the stature. We will be all that God desires for us to be in the fullness of Christ Jesus. So what is Paul saying? Paul is simply saying that Jesus has given his people when he ascended into heaven. He gave them all spiritual gifts. Namely, he gave his church gifts of certain men, apostles, prophets, and things that he's talking about. Gifts of certain men to maintain the unity and bring about a healthy uh, uh, um, uh, measure uh, uh, this with the word building up a healthy building up of the body of Christ up until a certain point when it'll no longer these gifts and these gifted men will no longer be needed. Why? Because the church will be transformed into the full measure of everything, unity, faith, measure of a man that God has for every member of this body. Okay, that went a little bit longer than I had anticipated, but I think that was a very, very beautiful section. So let us simply recap. Paul is simply saying in this chapter four, as he begins this section four through six, that since there is nothing that none of us can do, especially you Gentiles, none of us can do to be saved how should you respond to the gracious gift of God's salvation? Walk worthy of a manner of the man of your calling. So live right, endeavoring to do what? Keep unity and peace that was already given. Then he talked about, he explores that unity and speaking of the redemptive role of the Trinity, one 
uh, body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father over all, through all, and in all. And what did Jesus do in order to maintain that peace and unity for his believer, for the believers, for the church? He gave each and every one of them a spiritual gift when he ascended into heaven. And in particular, he gave them gifts of men, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. He gave them gifts of men when Jesus ascended. But before he ascended, he did what? He descended into paradise, a place where the righteous believers were, and he freed those righteous believers who were being held captive, awaiting the blood of the Messiah. He freed them from captivity into Sheol, paradise, and when he ascended into heaven, he also took those believers with him. And thus Jesus gave all of these gifts to the body of believers. These gifts were to continue up until the point of, we understand it to be the rapture of the church at which time all God's people come into the absolute perfection of unity, the absolute perfection of the faith, the absolute perfection of the knowledge of Jesus as the son of God, the fullness of all that God desires them to be in the day that they are transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and they put on this new seed of a man that was buried from that physical body. I'm in first Corinthians chapter 15, buried from that physical body that was planted into the earth. But at their transformation, they are full and complete and no longer mercury no longer having any usage of these spiritual gifts that are given. Now let's refer back to first Corinthians, not refer back to, but let's kind of look at first Corinthians 14. These gifts that were given to them, why? Because they were children. Thus God gave them these spiritual gifts because they were babes. They were children, but because, but, when they became men, they no longer needed these gifts. When they were at the fullness of their maturity, all that God wanted them to be at their translation, when God, this is again, speaking of the rapture, when they were transformed, they were brought into that full maturity. When they fully matured, they no longer needed these gifts. And that's the reference when Paul said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted as a child, but when I became a man, I did what I did, what put away these childish things. And what is the context of first Corinthians 14, when Paul talks about being a child and putting away childish things? the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Same thing here, the gifts of Christ. These gifts are done away with when we reach a point of maturity. And when do we reach that point of maturity? In our translation. That is, that uh, uh, a resurrection of Christians we call the rapture of the church. All right, enough said about that, no doubt. Much more can be said. Thanks, guys, for joining me with that particular teaching. Join me uh, again as we continue on in chapter four when Paul talks. He just basically continues on with how he desires for the Christian to live their lives in response to God's gracious salvation, his gift of salvation. And if these teachings have been a blessing to you, and if the Spirit of the Lord, only if, I only ask if, something touched your heart and says, why don't you support this ministry? Then I'm asking you to support this ministry. There's always a link in the description that you can use to, to support us, to support even me, 
to continue to bring you these teachings from the scripture. And for those of you who have supported this ministry, thank you for all that you do. And I pray that you continue to support. But anyway, guys, see you next time.